Hello and welcome to Extra Milestone, a spin-off series of the Cinemaholics podcast. Every month, we celebrate a noteworthy film anniversary. These are the classic films that we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking, making them as relevant today as they were yesterday. And that makes them Extra Milestones. I'm your host, John Agroni, back from a month-long stoning I endured upon the release of our last episode <laughs> of this show. Take stoning however you will. Mm, yes. Thank the heavens I am not alone. He has just been released from a crucifixion because luckily his name is close to Samson. It is, of course, Sam Roman. I, I mean, Noland. Oh, uh, yes. It is I, Sam Roman, the old, uh, your old silly pal that comes onto this, this here extra milestone show every single month. And gladly, as always. Glad to have you, of course. And sadly, our third panelist is not here Will Ashton, despite declaring that Life of Brian is probably his favorite Monty Python film, he mm. was not able to make it for this recording. We're doing this one extremely late, so I apologize. <laughs> and, um, yeah. We could not Not out of character longer. for us, but yes. That's true. So this month, we are strapping our sandals in for a comedic jaunt of biblical proportions, almost literally. We hey. are discussing Monty Python's Life of Brian, which you, the listeners, voted as the film you wanted to hear about the most as it reaches its 50th anniversary since opening John. in the UK. That's right. Uh, I thought for a second it was the 40th anniversary, as Sam wants to rib me now. But yes, it opened in the UK November of 1979, which was 50 years ago. <laughs> or sorry, no, <laughs> I don't know. 40 years ago. I don't know what type of math... <laughs> you're conceiving i don't know what's wrong with me i keep wanting to say this film is 50th or 45th actually it is the 40th anniversary (laughs) of life of brian uh what a life to me for for goodness sake what a 40 years it's been for brian hasn't it (laughs) yes Um, every one of them stay tuned toward the end of this episode to hear what we are considering for december 2019 so you can help us pick the nextra milestone by voting post haste Well, Sam, you know, Life of Brian, this is our second film chosen from the 1970s, also was released in 1979 as Alien, which we did Hmm. earlier this year at the beginning of the summer. This is also our first British film discussed on the show, I believe. Yeah, first first fully British, at least. Uh, Hmm. We've had like British crew members and uh, cast and crew and things of that nature. Um, But yeah, this is the first one. And this is what a way to start because this is <laughs> this is Monty Python so it's almost as british as it gets that is very true especially when uh, it comes into the making of this film as we'll get into and yeah we've done a french film 400 blows we've obviously done a bunch of american films and we've also done a japanese film with yes. uh, seven samurai so this month i keep wanting to say this week but for this episode we're going to be talking about our first experiences watching Life of Brian. Then we're going to discuss some background information on the film, its production, its overall legacy, as we love to do over the last four decades. All of this is going to be spoiler-free, as always, until you start hearing us go through the plot synopsis. So we're going to sell you on this movie first. If you haven't seen Life of Brian yet, you can keep listening. And once we start talking about the plot synopsis, I'm going to ask Sam Nolan, explain the film's story and all of that. We are going to be discussing plot details and specific jokes and things that you don't want to be spoiled on if you haven't seen the movie because you want to watch the jokes for yourself, right? So that'll be happening later in this show. But for now, let us get started with this episode. And Sam, before we do, I think we have to discuss the films that that didn't win, that lost in the polls to Life of Brian. What, What could have been? That's right. This is this is functionally like if this if this uh this is the cinemaholics equivalent 
of the Oscars in memoriam segment, the ones that That's we right. didn't, the ones that we didn't go with. It's a little dramatic when you think about it, but oh well. Listen, I'm I'm a lot dramatic, so I suppose it's only appropriate. And I'll be totally honest. This was of all of our uh, six choices that we that we imposed for the month of December. This was quite honestly the one I was considering least likely to win. So the fact that it did is uh, kind of astonishing to me. Of course, I'm right. glad to be talking about it. But uh, this was just for whatever reason, this was just not the one I thought everyone would go with. Um, so but besides the five nominees, we should mention Sam, right? Because this was on a list before we considered right. it for August uh, because yes. it technically came out in the U.S. in August of Which 1979. And I don't think I got any votes except for maybe one or two. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a big month. That was, if memory serves, um, on the waterfront and rear window. Where the windows. yes, it was, well, uh, it was I think one or the other. One was August and one was September. But yeah, that was a quite a stacked month. So I'm not surprised. But among this, among these other five, uh, surely I thought that this one would be the underdog coming in. But I thought the same thing about Ed Wood last month. That ended up winning. So I'm very curious to see how December turns out and every subsequent month after that. But before that, we have to talk about what didn't win for November, uh, which is quite an interesting selection. Um, you heard the five other nominees uh, in the previous episode that we announced uh, going in order of release date. It was Ishiro Honda's inimitable classic Godzilla, a.k.a. Gojira, uh, the OG Godzilla, uh, and still the best, I think. Um, I thought uh, Godzilla has been on a lot of brains recently. What with what with uh, you know all this all this monster verse stuff. Uh, so I thought maybe that would get a little bit of traction. And sure enough, it did get a few votes, didn't it? It did. I think it got uh, a couple, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't in the final running, if I recall. I think it was between this and maybe I think one of the other ones you'll get to in a second. Yeah, it was not quite the king of the monsters I was anticipating. Uh, but uh, a classic nonetheless and should be seen by everyone. Uh, also from the 1950s, although this is 1959, is uh, Ben-Hur, the other Jesus movie, I d which didn't even occur to me until watching this movie. I'm like, there were two of them set right around, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, first century time periods, which had did not even enter my brain until mm -hmm. yeah. today. Well, and then... We'll get the we'll get to this. But Life of Brian very much is making fun of films like Ben Hur. Yeah, and like Spartacus and other things of that nature. One of the other nominees, jumping forward to 1974, we had a uh, a twofer from that year. We had Murder on the Orient Express, which is uh, another movie being brought up a lot recently with Ryan Johnson's uh, stellar murder mystery, uh, Knives Out. This has uh, been recommended on a lot of like best murder mystery movie lists. Uh, so I thought that might garner some interest, uh, but of course it didn't end up winning. Same with A Woman Under the Influence, John Cassavetti's uh, indie classic from 1974, which I still have not seen, and I yeah. feel horrible about that. I'm I'm bummed. Yeah, we, we both haven't seen it. It would, it would have been the first one where like no one on the show has actually watched the film before. It's going to happen someday, and I look forward to that day because it's uh, I, there are always like mega fans of the movie that we end up choosing. And so it's going to be interesting going into it uh, uninitiated, so to speak. Um, and uh, I and I happen to know that one of us, I won't say who yet, uh, had not seen Life of Brian until now. So who could it be, I wonder? <laughs> mm -hmm. But what was the last one, Sam? The last pick was... Uh, uh, one that I threw in rather on the fly, uh, and, uh, 
just sort of on a whim, I threw in Wes Craven's uh, another inimitable kind of genre defining classic is A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which weirdly enough did go wide in November uh, as opposed to October 1984. That one was uh, would have been our second 80s film. Yeah. And it would have been um, or I guess Aliens, a horror movie, but it would have been our first slasher movie. So yes. that would have been that would have been a curious discussion. Would have been timely because Black Christmas just came out, which oh, you know, yes. one of the original slasher films. How could I forget? <laughs> Sorry, not, the new one is not, but yeah. <laughs> yes, this 2019 <laughs> movie, one of the originals. <laughs> you know what's funny about this whole list too is I was really hoping we would talk about something I had never seen before. And the th- there are three films on this list I've never seen. I've never seen the original Murder on the Orient Express. Yep. Uh, I still have not seen A Woman Under the Influence. And yes, I had not seen Monty Python's Life of Ryan until now. So yes. this, this was interesting. And I was really rooting for one of those three. I was mm. rooting for Murder on the Orient Express, which I, I just looked it up. Murder on the Orient Express and Ben-Hur were also pretty close to winning. Murder on the Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express was second place. No and what, what would have been interesting about doing that one is this would have been our first 1974 film, right? And uh, it looks like we might finish 2019 without picking a single film from 74 there are a bunch of years we mm. haven't done that would have been an extra milestone year but yeah very interesting how, how that turned out i wonder why that year has eluded us uh, as it well has. don't don't count your chickens before they hatch john i happen to know <laughs> we have that a month at, left yes at least two of them are in the running for december uh, and there are a couple of biggies so okay uh, will only time will tell. Um, I did want to real quick mention there were a couple of other movies that were that happened to be celebrating an anniversary in November that I uh, didn't include in the poll entirely, just because I thought um, uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't like they weren't the extra milestone that we like to uh, that we like to honor, so to speak. But they're worth mentioning in this context, nonetheless. Uh, the first one which wasn't on the list rather by accident because in uh, it also qualified for October um, as well as earlier in the year. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it's actually rather obscure. It's uh, Wim Wenders' Alice in the Cities, which is a 1974 film. Have you ever heard of that one, John? Yes, I have heard of Alice in the Cities. I believe it's a Criterion, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's part of Wim Wenders' Road Trilogy. It's the first one, yeah. uh, three movies, uh, not taking place in continuity with each other, but they all star the same actor. And they're all sort of like, they have this like wandering through the countryside spirit. Um, it's Alice in the Cities, Wrong Move, and Kings of the Road. Uh, and the first one, Alice in the Cities, I think is the best. It's really fantastic. Um, if if you have the Criterion channel, I believe it's on there. Highly recommend that one. I've heard amazing things. Yeah, I, I think I almost watched this on Hulu once, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Back in the day when they had Criterion. Yeah, this was a while back and I might have even started it. And then, yeah, I definitely didn't watch the whole thing. Yeah, because I remember October was a weird month for the extra milestone nominee list. So I guess I just completely bypassed this one. Uh, and I wish I hadn't because it's mm. it would have been amazing to talk about. But that reminds me then. I don't know if you're a fan of this film, but Paris, Texas, right? That's 1984. So that could have been an extra milestone. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't love that film though. So no, I'm not heartbroken. I'm I'm curious what, what month it came out in, but yeah, it technically could have qualified. Uh, Yeah. I have no idea what month it was, but yeah, I'm certain that would qualify as an extra milestone selection though. To some people, that's a beloved film. Oh yeah. It's a, you know, Wim Wenders is a, is a director to, uh, to look into if, mm. if you have the means. Um, another another director to look into you may have heard of is uh, Peter Jackson. Before he directed the Lord of the Rings <laughs> trilogy and after he did a bunch of uh, 
sort of B-grade horror schlocky kind of stuff, uh, did a rather fantastic movie called Heavenly Creatures, which came out in uh, the U.S. in November of 1994. This was another one that could have qualified for September and October, where they came out in New Zealand. Um, but I guess I just uh, was a little ignorant on that. So, yeah. Are you a Heavenly Creatures fan, John? Are you a creature that's heavenly? <laughs> it's all right. I, I think that's like a three and a half, three stars out of five kind of film. Mm, interesting. Pretty decent. Um, that's, is that Kate Winslet? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I saw it way, way back and uh, didn't leave a huge impression on me, but it has been a while. I wonder if uh, revisiting the film would change my mind. It's 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 always a mystery, isn't it? I saw it just last year in uh, uh, film class and quite loved it. So it uh, would have been nice to talk about. But once again, uh, was not meant to be, I suppose. Plus, it's not really it doesn't really have that extra milestone thing. You hear heavenly creatures. You don't think like ultimate iconic classic. Uh, not that it's bad, of course, yeah, but it just yeah. doesn't have that just doesn't have that clout, at least not among most circles. Um, a movie that might have some clout among some circles is uh, Luc Besson's action adventure. Well, not so much adventure, but just action thriller. Uh, Leon, the professional Jean Renault's defining role, I say. Came out in the U.S. in November, also 1994. So, oh, why didn't we pick that? That that would have been a great extra milestone. It would have been fun. Perhaps I love that film. Oversight on my part. I it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember digging it. It's mm. probably most famous for the ludicrous Gary Oldman yep. performance. It's the movie if you if you probably recognize this gif where he yells, "Everyone, everyone!" I think that's the cadence. <laughs> uh, that's a great film. Uh, I think the debut of natalie portman yeah if not uh if not right after it very, i remember really in her career i remember seeing her in something else uh recently like around that time period but yeah this mm. this was five years before star wars the phantom menace so uh baby baby natalie portman um yeah and uh got a an all-time for the ages gary oldman so it's hard to go wrong there uh and then we've got a couple of pixar joints rounding out this honorable honorable mention list mm. is a uh, toy story 2 1999 i was six months old uh, <laughs> so did you watch it or not <laughs> i couldn't <laughs> say i don't remember that time period it is possible uh, i suppose it is yeah the first movie i remember seeing funnily enough though is the other movie which is celebrating its 15 year anniversary is the incredibles first movie i ever remember seeing in the theater still a film i would consider one of the best superhero films ever made i would agree i would agree it's way way up there uh and uh the uh the, the sequel ain't half bad either wouldn't you say i i enjoy the sequel quite a lot i bicker a little bit with will ashton of course we, we were just argu not arguing but debating this past week on incredibles 2 and spider-man into the spider-verse because mm -hmm. uh so last year for our top 10 films of 2018 will put incredibles 2 as his number 10 and into the spider-verse did not make his top 10 now that was our cinemaholics yep. movie of that year because a lot of other people, contributors of the show, had it on their top 10 list. I had it yep. as like number five. I did, as did I. A lot of people had it uh, in like their top five. I think a, f a few people might have had it as their number one. And I think that yeah. is the film that in like 15, 20 years, that's a film that's going to be remembered, not Incredibles 2. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I seem to recall Adonis Gonzalez had that as yep. his number one. I was like my six or maybe seven, but yeah, certainly on the list, uh, uh, but yeah, so maybe, maybe in the year 2033, we'll be able to talk about that as the, uh, the extra milestone, right on. uh, let's, but let's talk about 
Life yeah. of Brian, John. Life of Brian. This is our. This is the. This is the one that the listeners chose, and I'm. I'm pleasantly surprised to see that it did get a comeback. That people decided to to look at this one. You kind of mentioned it earlier, but the taste of our listeners is so interesting to me. And Isn't it? That's the thing that I like about this show, though, <laughs> is that we're not making the decisions for them. We're, we're narrowing it down to make it an easier choice, but. Just the idea that, like, I never, un- I never know. Just doing cinemaholics in general, what's gonna be popular? Like, what are people uh-huh. gonna really grab onto? Like, yeah. yeah, you have your like Avengers episodes. Like, people love that, right? And uh-huh. those are always very popular. And the big Marvel movies and Joker was a big episode. But then you have episodes like mid '90s. I was literally just gonna bring that up. You mentioned that <laughs> in the thing. That was like yeah. your second most popular episode of last year, wasn't it? It was. It it's it's unbelievable to me, but. Uh, of uh, 2018 that was one of our our most listened to episodes and i don't know why but i love it <laughs> and that's the thing is like when we empower the listeners to choose the movies this is what happens we get something like life of brian and so far i have noticed that every every film that we've done so far whether it be ed wood do the right thing and the 400 blows some like it hot seven samurai these are all films that i think are not just good but are ones that people are more interested in the conversation about we could have done a lot of other films that a lot of people have heard about more right we could have done pulp fiction could have done forrest gump could there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of like classic movies but i think will's the one who usually champions like "Ah, enough enough podcasts have talked about those films they they've, they've addressed like everything that needs to be addressed about whatever it is. And the fact that we've had a chance to discuss some lesser known ones is, is pretty great. I know Life of Brian is a film that people definitely love, but I don't know. I, I don't get to hear a lot of discussion about this film in depth as we're about to do. I, I'm sure there's a bunch out there that's great, but this is one that I think will be very unique. And to get into that, let's let's start with uh, the big question. How many times have you yes. seen the film? And how did you watch it this time? I'll go first because it's very simple. This was my first viewing. As you all know, as I've already revealed, first time seeing Life of Brian, I watched it on Netflix. If you're in the US, you can watch Life of Brian right now. I don't know mm. internationally what its rights are, but uh, hopefully in a lot of other countries, you can access it in an easy way like this. And yeah, I, I watched it today. So I'm pretty fresh off of Life yes. of Brian. Uh, but yes. what about you? I know this is a, a little bit of a different experience for you. Little bit, uh, not not severely so, but yeah, this is uh, for, for this extra milestone episode. This is my second time viewing uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian. Uh, the first time I watched it, uh, April 2017. Uh, I can't recall the day offhand, not that it matters. Um, but yeah, it was around that time, uh, right towards the end of high school. I was feeling so whimsical. I was like, man, there's so much I still haven't seen. Wait a minute, there's a Monty Python movie. I still have yet to cross off my cinematic bucket list. And so that was all the emphasis I needed. So I watched it with my dad, who had, uh, is is very active in the Cinemaholics comment That's section, right. by the way. He used to go by JWN. Now he just, he zoned up to it. He's Sam's dad. And right. he started a bit of a kerfuffle in the comments section. People asking <laughs> all kinds of personal questions that they could just ask you, Sam. Yeah, I'm like, I'm an open book, <laughs> friends. No need to go through my father, but uh, all any and all interaction is encouraged. So, it's great to yes. hear from you, by the way, Sam's dad, who does have a name, but uh, I don't know if he wants to reveal it. Uh, but thank you for listening. One of our one of our premier listeners of the show. It's great to see him popping up in the comments. 
recommending he's he recommended life of brian he said it was your first r-rated movie but that which is quite a accurate. lie <laughs> which is hilarious uh no, as a matter of fact, my first R-rated movie was uh, The Meaning of Life. So I can see where the confusion took place. Um, uh, that one we watched. The Meaning I, of I Life was, is the life of Brian. Is the, the Meaning of Life of Brian. That's fantastic. And the Holy Grail. Uh, it's, uh, it was like 2000. This has become. This, and now for something completely different. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 2013. Uh, and I was like, Dad, I've had enough of this pg-13 nonsense uh and uh i'm was a like, man All right, i'm a, i'm a man now <laughs> i probably sounded like uh there's like a what's what's that uh john mulaney bit i'm not a man i'm not a man i'm a little boy <laughs> great john mulaney bit oh uh, get some rest tall child i hear that all the time at work so it's good to know uh i'm on the same page as my coworkers. you are but very I digress. tall but not a child Yes, you've seen in person. I'm I'm six feet five inches tall. Yep. Uh, I I dwarf our our wonderful co-host John. Uh, <laughs> so yes, if if you ever catch me in person, be prepared. For if that. you thought it was just knowledge, he dwarfs me in. No, <laughs> it's also height and insight, and height and insight, the <laughs> deadly combination. I should. Uh, I, we are way off on a tangent, um, but such is the nature of the extra milestone, uh, especially when it's a jam hour such as this, which is uh, John and Sam combined into one glorious. Yeah, usually, usually at this point, Will would be able to step in and uh, set yeah. us set us up back on track, you know. But no such luck this time. Yeah. Uh, so as I was saying, I watched, I saw Monty Python and the Holy Grail at like nine years of age. Uh, so that one has always been a classic for me. And then a couple of years later, as I said, I watched Meaning of Life, uh, which was R-rated. So it was sort of, sort of had this mysterious uh, uh, appeal to it. Um, and sure enough, that is a very R-rated movie. So uh, it really it really stuck in my brain uh, ever since. And I still have only seen it the one time. So um, I can't recall many of the jokes precisely, but, uh, and then shortly after that, or not shortly, I guess, four years after that, I watched life of Brian and I was like, Oh, this is good. This is not bad. Uh, and then of course watch it again for this, uh, extra milestone. And, uh, both times I watched it on DVD, uh, DVD. My dad has, uh, if, if I have my facts, right, uh, purchased in 2004 for the 25th anniversary uh, right. which which they actually had to fight for because this movie has gone through a long history of uh, censorship and things of that nature. So that DVD is not something to just, you know, not to just scoff at, be like, oh, anyone can get that. This movie's it's seen it all. It's extremely hard to get a physical copy of this film. But we're, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But Sam, I want to know because you're, you're probably a bigger, more principled observer of the Monty Python legacy. I'm not. I, I have not seen a lot of Monty Python. I've seen a few sketches. Uh, I've seen Monty, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've seen a little bit of Meaning of Life. But to be honest, it's it's just never been something that's been my jam, to borrow an earlier phrase. So you, you have a little, you could probably explain the Monty Python phenomenon a little bit better, especially to our younger listeners who are not as aware. This is something that was years and years and years before both of our times. So oh, I'm yes. sure a lot of our listeners probably know, have heard Monty Python before, but maybe they don't know exactly like, okay, what is that really? And like, who are those guys? 
Yeah, it's uh, they they've leaked into the consciousness in a huge, huge way that lingers to this day. Many of many of them are still alive, most of them, in fact. So, uh, and they're still going. So, uh, there's no shortage of Python content. But the way they got started was uh, there are six uh, British comedians uh, and producers and filmmakers uh, who all came together. Uh, rather haphazardly in the early 1960s. A few of them were at Oxford University. A few of them were at Cambridge. Uh, Terry Gilliam was just some guy that John Cleese happened upon once. Uh, but they they ultimately, uh, they formed together. They were these up-and-coming uh, comedians. They had done, like, you know, radio shows and uh, variety TV and things of that nature. Yeah, they were they were a comedy troupe. Yes, uh, and, uh, and still are. Um, they were... Uh, they combined their efforts um, in the late 1960s uh, to do a show called Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, they had the the various uh, members of the troupe had been approached separately by different uh, uh, companies and corporations and stuff uh, to do shows, but they wanted to do something together, and so they ultimately decided to do kind of a kind of a self-made. Uh, show where they did a lot of the work. They they played most of the characters, uh, as is consistent with the movies. Um, they did a lot of the produ- the uh, uh, production. Uh, Terry Gilliam was a renowned animator and would do many animated sequences to sort of give a uh, sort of a stream of consciousness to the show. Um, and if you ever watch Monty Python's Flying Circus or the movie uh, that is essentially like the feature length version of that, uh, and now for something completely different, um, it is dramatically unconnected. Like there's no real overarching plot. Uh, a lot of times there's not even a punchline because they can't, they couldn't figure out a way to end it. They will just come out right out and say, it's like, yeah, we don't really know how to, how to end it. So why bother? Let's just cut to something else, uh, using like some sort of a meta joke or an animated sequence or anything really. Uh, it's very random. It's very absurd. It's also very fun. Uh, they're, they're all hilarious. Um, and they all have very unique sense of humor, uh, which you'll learn quickly watching any of the, any of the movies or any of the sketches um they uh they all played numerous roles again this was a tradition that is as old as theater itself from like shakespearean times uh notably though it was done a lot at the time peter sellers was known to do this a lot uh play multiple characters and i happened to watch a movie recently uh which i want to give a little shout out to called kind hearts and coronets uh which by the way was a nominee for an earlier month of the extra milestone came out in 1949 it's a intense Intensely British comedy starring Alec Guinness as eight different characters. That's right, that Alec Guinness, Obi Wan Kenobi himself. So uncivilized. So uncivilized. Uh, plays the eight rich members of the Dascoin family who have to be assassinated one by one. So this enterprising heir to the to the fortune can claim what is rightfully his as his mother's dying wish. It is hilarious and bleak and has one of the most insane endings I've seen in a long time. It's a, this is a kind of a weird reference to make, but if you've ever seen the original Ocean's Eleven with the Rat Pack, uh, that one has a very unusual and unexpected and strikingly uh, just powerful ending that I can't think of any other movie like it. It's except uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, as it turns out. So that's that's a fantastic one. Uh, and Monty Python are no strangers 
to a tradition so they they'll often play lots of different characters with various costumes and voices and uh inflections they'll play multiple genders uh a lot of the time multiple ages they're they're quite versatile as it turns out uh and flying circus was a very workmanlike process they would just they would go in at nine they would leave at five uh and it would just everything just kind of work nicely um and then eventually in the early 1970s 73 if memory serves uh, John Cleese, um, who you'll recognize uh, if you're younger as as a nearly headless Nick from uh, the Harry Potter movies. Still such a crazy cameo for me. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It is. <laughs> um, and uh, John Cleese in the early 70s, out of rather out of the blue, just kind of lost interest in Flying Circus, said, yeah, we've kind of done we've kind of expended all of our sketch energy. Uh, most of what we're doing now is just sort of recycling old material. Um, and so sure enough, the the remaining members of the troop decided, okay, well, what's the use in going on if we can't be uh, a unit anymore? And so it was at that point when they started shifting their attention to feature films. Uh, they wanted to do something a little bit more marketable, specifically more marketable overseas, because uh, sure enough, Flying Circus had quite a following over here in the States and uh, elsewhere as well. Um, and so their first proper movie, excluding and now for something completely different, which, uh, again, was just sort of a collection of sketches. Um, they did Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was a riff, a satire, if you will, on old Arthurian legend. Um, and it's a, a movie I've seen on the big screen multiple times. The movie itself, I've seen at least three dozen times. And I'm not making that up. It's my word probably my favorite comedy it's still funny to me uh oh. and it's it's one of my favorite movies so wow. that's that's where i stand on holy grail i didn't uh, know you liked holy grail that much oh yeah it's it's a classic it's an it's a nolan classic okay. uh so it's um it's fantastic and i can't get enough of it and what happened was that it came out it was a big hit despite having a really troubled production uh which i won't go into detail about but lots of stuff involving like uh directorial tasks and everything like that um it was a troubled production so that came out and of course all the what's the question that you ask someone after they make a successful movie is what are you going to do next and uh uh what happened was that eric idol one of the members of monty python just came up with like a joke answer which was we're going to make jesus christ and the lust for glory which was just a title they made up. But then they realized, say, this could be something. And thus, we got Life of Brian, which, uh, as with any movie, went through years of development, but ultimately resulted and is now a comedy classic, I say. Yeah, there's so much to say about their comedy, and it's hard to put words to it in an audio form. <laughs> you really have to see it to sort of understand that unique sense of humor like you're talking about. Um, I would bring up that... Terry, all of these guys went on to do great things. Terry Gilliam went on to be a pretty well-known director, pretty good director. He's made some good films like 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And what I would consider his best film is Brazil, a film that hopefully yeah. we can talk about at some point next year, because that's 1985. And a film that yeah, I think I you so. appreciate, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the Criterion film. Um, he did that as well. Uh, he did the remake of that. The one I love is... Uh, oh, was there the, one uh, before that? Okay. Yeah, the one from the '60s is the one I love. I see. Yeah, so yes. so a very uh, very beloved film director and animator. I believe he also did the animations right for Life of Brian. Yes. Yeah. So uh, John Cleese, though, uh, you know, the, kind of a kind of a different legacy 
uh, in yeah. recent years. A lot of a lot of voice acting, mm-hmm. right? He he's been like the king character in like the Shrek movies. Uh, less great, he's been in like a lot a lot of animated films that aren't good, which yeah. is sad to say, <laughs> especially very very recently. Um, really over the last, like over the two thousands, I think he's doing he's going to be a voice in the Clifford movie, the Big Red Dog one they're doing next year. I didn't even know that's a thing. That's it is. but that doesn't surprise me at all. He does have a very distinctive voice, perhaps the most distinctive of yeah. any of the of the pythons, except for maybe Eric Idle, who uh, is instantly recognizable right. through even us even one word of dialogue. Cleese has a, a very good voice, very good, uh, just just a good delivery, very distinctive. It's just you know as good a voice actor as he is. A lot of the the animated films he is in tend to be sort of the forgettable ones but that's yeah. neither here nor there life of brian first opened in the united states in august 17th 1979 but it just opened in five theaters because it definitely uh well we'll get to that <laughs> it's a <laughs> bit of a controversial film uh, it later opened in november 8th of that same year in the uk it was distributed by warner brothers here in the u.s and cinema international in the uk and the python self-titled production joint made this film with financial backing originally of emi which backed out because there was a leaked version of the script that scared them off <laughs> and uh they to this day they don't know who did that uh, who who leaked the script yeah i i heard i heard that what happened was um it was it wasn't so much that it was like leaked or something. It was more that EMI sort of was just sort of passingly agreeing to make it. And then just before production started, like yeah. as in within a matter of days, they actually read the script and realized just how uh, just how, uh, for lack of a better word, biting it was um, and decided and, and uh, yeah. got cold feet and backed out. They were they were under a lot of pressure too by Mary Whitehouse in the UK. Yeah, yeah. you know, there are a lot of people. As soon as there were like rumblings of this film, AMI was yeah. like, "This isn't." And they weren't the only ones. But who ends up uh, oh. selling his house <laughs> and starting a production company to fund Life of Brian? But George, George Harrison. Harrison, unbelievable! Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea this was the case. So George Harrison and Dennis O'Brien, a uh, film producer, started. A production company called Handmade Films, which only made a handful of films besides this one, but they started it to save Life of Brian from not happening. And this is oh, how yeah. they were able to make the film. They invested, I think, three, three billion, three million pounds. I don't remember. If it's a I, I heard. Or million. I heard four million. Um, well, the I heard budget. The, that the budget's four million dollars, but I don't know what it is in pounds. Yeah, that might be so. It, so it's something along there, but no, no small amount to be sure. And mm-hmm. I heard that. I heard this little anecdote that uh, uh, Eric Idle was close friends with George Harrison, more so than most of the other Pythons. Uh, and George Harrison's reasoning was, why did you why did you spend so much on this movie? And George said, well, I wanted to see it get made. And so in that way, he he's functionally paying a ticket to see the movie. And yeah, so it's the most expensive said, ticket ever made. Oh, it's the most expensive movie ticket ever made. <laughs> and uh, George Harrison also has a cameo in the film. That's right. A uh, very quick one. And they had to dub his voice in. Which is hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, so the as we mentioned, Life of Brian had a budget of just $4 million. It's one of the lower budgets we've we've seen on a film discussed in this show. And yeah. it went on to make a lot of money considering it's, it had such a small release. $20 million, which uh, a lot more for 1979 than it would be for today. But yeah, I mean, just opening in five theaters in the US, it was banned in Norway. Uh, I think uh, it was banned in Norway and then it opened in theaters in Sweden which to sell the movie said this movie is so funny it was banned in Norway. Like you know those you know those Norse 
people. They don't ban a lot. Wow. So, so as you can imagine from this film being selected, Life of Brian is considered to be one of the most controversial films of all time, but also one of the funniest. And a lot of critics have sided with the film over the religious scholars who accuse it of being blasphemous and uh, very provocative against religion and organized religion. But yeah, critics critics got it. They understood. And that's obviously great to see. Uh, I'm going to play a clip here from Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, who praised the film on the show Sneak Previews back in 1979, just a month after the film's initial North American release. Uh, here is the clip. Now, this film is controversial because Life of Brian does relate to the Christ story and does have some religious leaders now saying that it's therefore blasphemy. They obviously shouldn't see Life of Brian. In fact, I wonder if they did see Life of Brian. This movie isn't about Jesus. It's a parody of religious movies. And it's also one of the year's funniest films. I think that's the key. Either you find it funny or you don't. I've read the newspaper reports about the religious leaders and groups who have said the film is offensive and blasphemous. I must say that I went looking for that in a way, yeah. and I just didn't find it. If anybody who sees Monty Python's Flying Circus on television is not going to find too much in this movie to upset or surprise them. It's a, no. it's a funny, silly, harmless movie. I feel bad having to defend it. Uh, you know, I wonder about these people, religious leaders who say things like this. Do they think that people who have deep personal religious faith will be have that faith shaken by a 90-minute movie? How shallow, how patronizing, how insulting to people of faith. This is a funny picture. I think you're right, and I think now we should go on to something completely oh. different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think the only thing I take issue with there is that the film is... 93 minutes, not 90 minutes, Gene Sisko. <laughs> Come on, Come Gene. on. Pay attention to the numbers. I can't say anything <laughs> considering the numbers I've messed exactly. up. Exactly. Um, but yes. You bite your tongue, Jonathan. They, they weren't the only critics who were big proponents of this film, and their reaction was very interesting. They were like, so what? Like, why? why is this stopping you from just letting this film exist you don't i i know a lot of people have sort of put it out it's like you know what if you don't want to watch this movie because it offends you because of the way it goes after religion some as some would interpret it then okay that's fine but stop trying to get in the way of other people who are trying to enjoy this film i think that's what causes a lot of consternation and i think it was i want to say it was terry jones who said it best he said in a documentary about the film on channel four the secret meaning of life of Brian, I think it was called. And he said that, of course, you know, the, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said like, of course, like this movie is going to offend people because it's criticizing people who can't think for themselves. Mm. And that is just like, boom, goes a dynamite destroyed, you know, finish him, take out <laughs> that really was, this is a movie that has gone on to last and be relevant because a lot of people recognize that it is it's more about religion and making fun of like the way people organize religion and criticizing that and yeah. not really criticizing Jesus and they even have said in like interviews like yeah we thought about like when it was originally Jesus Christ lost for glory that's like the joke title they thought about maybe satirizing Jesus Christ and they had like a sketch yeah. for example where he was like 
you know, the he, Jesus is getting crucified, but there the the cross is like shabbily made or something, and Jesus has to like because he's a carpenter is like no 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 this is how you do it right and like that yeah. that's kind of the idea they had, but then they they reneged and were like no no no. Jesus Christ, he he seems like too decent a guy. I think it's like where they landed. It's like, it's not funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, they didn't find that material as funny as like, well, what if there was a guy who was like being mistaken for the Messiah? And then they can have a movie here that is really making fun of religious movies like Ben-Hur, as we mentioned, like uh-huh. the Ten Commandments, like Spartacus, yeah. like these big biblical epics that were huge, huge, huge deals in the 1950s and so on. And the 1970s, as a matter of fact, uh, Franco Zeffirelli, who directed uh, perhaps the best adaptation, film adaptation, at least, of Romeo and Juliet, uh, in 1977 directed Jesus of Nazareth, this huge, uh, this huge epic about Jesus Christ. Uh, and they, Monty, uh, Life of Brian, part of the reason why the budget was so small was they just reused the same set. They thought, why not? It's there. It was in the uh, Tunisian desert, same place yeah. where uh, the, the Tatooine scenes of Star Wars Episode Four were filmed. Uh, so that's part of the reason why. I think that that scene that you mentioned or that anecdote about Jesus like criticizing the cross making skills uh, and then doing it himself, showing this is how you do it. Not unlike a scene that that ended up making it into the, uh, into the movie involving some grammatical graffiti errors. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's interesting to hear where this movie came from. It's when it sounds kind of absurd to summarize it, but Monty Python basically came to the conclusion that satirizing Christ himself was punching down. It's so funny that Jesus <laughs> is punching down, but it really is. Uh, and, and they've gone on to say that, yeah, there's nothing wrong. Like, like all of them are atheists uh, or none of them believe in God, at least. But they were all raised on religion. Like they know their stuff. I think like Terry Gilliam, especially was somebody who for a long time, he says like, oh, I read the Bible twice. Like, I, I oh, yeah. know it. I understand it. These guys grew up with like the Church of England. They just, you know, they, they just never bought into religious teachings themselves. Yeah. And so as a result, it makes sense that they would come out with this movie sort of uh, being sort of damning, no pun intended, of uh, just sort of the blind fanaticism that is uh, sadly rather, rather frequent among yeah. certain circles. Well, you know, what I really think is sad is that these are the guys who have to do it. You have to, we have to rely on the more objective, like bystanders who are watching history sort of do its religion thing rather than the people within religion be able to take shots at their own faith and, and lighten up a little bit. I think it's a little sad that we have to rely on these really funny British comedians when you could have great comedy and satire and parody coming from within. I'm sure there is a lot of that out there. But sure. it, it tends to be few and far between. I, I think at least, especially these days, considering it, you know, Christian films are such a you know, monolith unto themselves. And a lot of the people who have the courage to sort of like, you know, <laughs> reflect on the, some of the absurdities of organized religion, uh, a lots of different kinds, not just Christianity, which in this case, but, you know, and, and I would say Christianity and Jewish religion, but then, yeah. you know, Islam and and all, everything under the sun, every religion oh, yeah. under the sun, you can you can poke a little bit of fun at and everyone's going to be OK. Even if it's not a religion, like it's it's not exactly the same thing, but I'm reminded of Jojo Rabbit, kind of one of the one of the overall kind of theses of that movie is just how how silly all this fanaticism is uh, and how humiliating it is when just looking at it objectively, like all this uh, insane prejudice and black and white thinking and everything is really doing more harm than good uh, to 
the believers of it and those around. Them. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the people who could get their hands or their eyes, we should say, on the life of Brian, Monty Python's life of Brian. I always want to say the life of Brian, but it's not that declarative. Uh, The people who were able to see it did come out and see it in droves. This is the highest grossing British film released in North America in 1979. It was also the fourth highest grossing film release in Britain that year. Oh, yeah. You mentioned you, you got the DVD in 2004. And that's probably because in April 2004, Life of Brian was re-released in the United States to compete (laughs) and sort of as a joke with Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. That's right. So, you know, The Passion of the Christ, of course, a much more serious um, take and uh, a film that is, in my opinion, quite atrocious. That's a film that I did see in theaters and I just found to be absolutely appalling. And it it was one of those things where I I grew up very, you know, in in an evangelical church. And and that was that film is a bit of a sacred cow. I guess pun intended. Um, yeah. <laughs> growing up, you know, growing up in a church like that—that that is a film that has often been like really heralded, uh, especially in like the Catholic faith. But yeah, if you if you look back on that film today, it it is something, uh, and uh, it is kind of interesting to me that the Life of Brian was playing in theaters. It did not make a lot of money, uh, especially compared to Holy Grail, Monty Python, Holy Grail, which was re-released as well a few years prior. That one made quite a bit of money by comparison. And Holy Grail has always been the Holy Grail of Monty Python films. That was, it's the only one that I had seen from beginning to end. I'd seen it twice. And I have to be honest, like I remember when the Monty Python craze happened, Sam, it was Mm. a big deal. All of a sudden I was in high school and all of my friends were all of a sudden talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This was in the mid 2000s, right? And I think it had had like a DVD release and all of that. And all, all of my friends were starting like starting to watch it for the first time. And I watched Holy Grail and I didn't I didn't connect with it. I, I tried rewatching it years later. There, there's something about the humor in that film that really turned me off. And I I had liked some sketches uh, as I mentioned before from like the Monty Python guys. But for whatever reason, Holy Grail was just I don't know. I I, I don't find it nearly as funny as you did. At least. Uh, two different versions of a younger me <laughs> did not really appreciate this film. So I walked into Life of Brian or, you know, I walked into Netflix <laughs> of yes. Life of Brian. Very, very skeptical. <laughs> uh, I'll talk a little bit more about how I how I regard the film at this point. But just to wrap up the the legacy yeah. of this one. And yeah. uh, this this is interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of films we've talked about this year. I think every single one has had a lot of awards consideration. But Life of Brian is, I think, the first film we're talking about an extra milestone. It doesn't have any Academy Award nominations. It doesn't have any like British awards or any smaller festivals or anything like that. It didn't play at any festivals. It wasn't nominated for anything that I could find in any of my research. However, it has been consistently cited to be one of the greatest comedy films of all time. Total Film Magazine declared it the best comedy film in the year 2000 channel four mm. the same uh channel four that uh on british tv that did the uh, documentary i mentioned they had a list of the 50 greatest comedy films of all time um they named it number one and they named it the 23rd best film of all time and mm. it was the only comedy or there was only one other comedy ranked higher and that was some like it hot oh uh, yes which which is uh <laughs> which is is uh interesting because we did talk about some like it hot earlier this year uh yep. the guardian uh had had it as number one in 2007 uh, Time Out magazine ranked it third uh, behind Airplane, and this is Spinal Tap. The BFI has it as the 28th best British film of all time, the seventh highest ranking comedy. Empire magazine listed it as the second best British film of all time, right behind Lawrence of Arabia. And Sam, we Which, always... Oh, go ahead. If you're going to lose to someone, it had better be freaking Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. 
doesn't surprise me at all. Um, it's, uh, I think it's interesting that you bring up the, uh, the award consideration. I hadn't thought about that beforehand, but it's, uh, I think this is the first, we talked about this off air a little bit, how this is the first or perhaps the second uh, kind of broad comedy, uh, with the only exception that we've done at least, with the only exception, again, being Some Like It Hot. But I think the difference is that uh, Some Like It Hot was directed by Billy Wilder and has Jack Lemmon and Tody Curtis and uh, Marilyn Monroe. It's got like some prestige to it. It it was a big best picture kind of film, right? And then you can't even compare it to It Happened One Night, which is a screwball comedy, because that's really a blending of comedy and romance so it's it's not quite a pure you know like this is a film that is like constructed to be making people laugh as much as possible whereas some like it hot and it happened one night are well they're they're more of like big appeal mainstream films that are trying to make you laugh but then also really invest in these characters and the narrative and the romantic elements and all that yeah It, it helps too that when those other two movies came out uh at the time they were like kind of the big you know, they were doing big numbers. Uh, the 70s, by contrast, uh, was actually a much more, uh, I don't want to say artistic, but um, the 70s is kind of renowned for uh, for being really rather director-driven in hindsight. Like, most of the big movies that we remember from the 70s as being, like, among the best, or most iconic at least, uh, were really ambitious, auteur-driven uh, artistic visions, uh, you know, like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, uh, some other movies that aren't directed by Coppola, uh, you know, Taxi Driver, the list could go on. Uh, these aren't, these are the kind of movies that get a lot of like awards consideration today, but they're not doing the big numbers. In the 70s, they were doing huge. Like, uh, I happen to know that The Sting, 1973 Best Picture winner, adjusted for inflation, is like one of the best uh like one of the best uh, grossing movies of all time. So uh, it's it's interesting to see because Life of Brian, in comparison to those other two movies, uh, has a little bit more of a debaucherous air to it, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. It's a very uh, <laughs> dirty film. One of the dirtiest programs I've ever seen is Mary Wynne. A very naughty movie. <laughs> it's not the Messiah, just a very naughty boy. Yes. Uh, Yes. So, oh, and uh, what about on the AFI, the American Film Institute? What, what do they have it as, Sam? I know you have that memorized. Uh, that I, uh, I have a different list memorized. I have the empire magazine top 500. Oh, sorry. I mixed it up. Uh, constructed. Uh, Cause I don't think it qualifies for the AFI. Um, cause it's a British oh, it's movie. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, on empire's top 500 of all time list, which they made in, uh, the year 2008, uh, it ranked number 203, one spot below, uh, John Woo's The Killer, and one spot above, James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein. So it's a weird mm. couple of movies yeah. there. That's, a, that's yeah. an interesting triple feature to include. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to uh, nothing to sneeze at. I recommend yeah. watching Life of Brian first if you're gonna if you are so inclined. But uh, that is neither here and perhaps not there. <laughs> well, this is also one of the best reviewed comedies according to a list done by Rotten Tomatoes which is kind of fitting because Booksmart is another, like as of this year, is another one of the most well-praised comedy films of all time at this point. Uh, Life of Brian has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording out of 64 reviews, and Booksmart has a 97% out of 327. And very, very fascinating legacy for Life of Brian. I don't want to dive too much into all the controversy and stuff. Let's just talk about the movie.
this is the point where we talk about the plot, the jokes. If you have not seen Life of Brian and you do not want to be spoiled on any of these details, please stop listening now. Pause. And so you can watch Life of Brian right now through the means of your choice. Oh, hey, welcome back. Great. Great to have you back. This is the part where you can start <laughs> listening again. Sam, go ahead. What is the what is what is Life of Brian about? What is this life? What is the meaning of it? Oh, uh, well, it's, it's very interesting syntax there, John. I'm going to choose to ignore it. Um, Life of Brian, as the title would suggest, uh, follows the the exploits of one Brian Cohen, who, as we learn uh, in sort of this prologue, um, was born in a stable in Nazareth right next door to uh, some guy named Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, the Messiah, if you will. Uh, born right next door. And we open on three wise men on camels, very fabulous camels, uh, as they as they're envisioned in this movie, uh, bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They go into what they believe to be Jesus Christ's stable. They start giving the gifts to this young child as the mother uh, played wonderfully by Terry Jones. Uh, uh, Mandy, her name is, which I think is hilarious. Uh, she's interjecting and everything. And then they give the gifts. And <laughs> they walk out and then quickly come back and realize, oh, wrong stable. Here we go. <laughs> and then bring it over to the next one <laughs> and give it to Jesus Christ. Thus, the life of Brian begins. Uh, and we see this really fantastic opening uh, animated credit sequence done again by Terry Gilliam uh, with an opening title song. If memory serves, I really should have looked this up. Uh, isn't it Shirley Bassey singing the title song for this? Uh, I'll take your word for it because it sounds just like her. If uh, she uh, famously sung the opening numbers to a handful of James Bond movies, not the least of which were Goldfinger, uh, which is one of the best Bond themes to this day, uh, and Moonraker, uh, which is one of the most forgettable Bond themes to this day. Uh, but regardless, we see a fantastic opening credit sequence. And then we come to Judea, 33 AD. Uh, and uh, we see, this is where the George Harrison cameo comes in. Uh, we see Jesus Christ up on the hill in his only appearance in the movie, just up on the mount giving a sermon. Uh, and we cut back to mm, the have-nots, let's call them. Uh, and they're like, oh, I can't hear a thing. <laughs> and thus the comedy begins begins uh now at this point john i have to ask you what are you what you're watching the movie uh are you feeling it this time yet or did it take a while for it to for it to really sink in that this was one of the good pythons that's a good question i i will tell you it was not this scene it's not quite yet there yeah. is a scene coming up that is where i figured it out where it clicked it connected <laughs> but now when i rewatch the scenes now that i get it now that i'm initiated I understand, and let's let's play a little bit of a clip from that first scene, not not the stable one, but the let's play a clip from the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Speak up! Quiet, mom. Well, I can't hear a thing. Let's go to stoning. You can go to a stoning anytime. Oh, come on, Brian. Will you be quiet? Don't pick your nose. I wasn't picking my nose, I was scratching. You was picking it while he was talking to that lady. <laughs> I wasn't. Leave it alone, give it a rest. Do you mind? I can't hear a word he's saying. Don't you do you mind me. I was talking to my husband. Well, go and talk to him somewhere else. I can't hear a bloody thing. Don't you swear on my wife. I was only asking her to shut up so he can hear what he's saying, big nose. Don't you call my husband big nose. <laughs> well, he has got a big nose. Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. I was too busy talking a big nose. 
Oh, uh, this movie. So yeah, as you can sort of hear the here here's what I did appreciate in this moment, and and the thing that I I first got about this on a more deeper level, I guess. But yeah, I was like I wonder oh, if we have the same point because I'm going to say something different. Just the fact that this is. If you've seen a lot of religious movies from like the time periods before this, they're so grandiose and melodramatic yes. and people have this yes. way of talking. But here it's like it and they always cast like British actors, right? Who are, who do not look like they're from the Middle East. But here yeah. it's like the joke is like what what people of today would like be talking about or like how they would sound and then how absurd that is. And it's like poking fun at like how Ben-Hur and how Spartacus and how these movies just place British people in and, and life of Brian is being like, well, this is, you know, this is like the, the absurd like conclusion from that decision to make. (laughs) Yeah. It's what was happening like just off screen, so to speak, while all this grandiose biblical legendary uh, portent was going on. I love that we came to the exact same conclusion that this kind of the thesis of this movie beyond all of the comments it has to make about, uh, fanaticism and everything. Um, it's really just acknowledging that, yeah, we have all these events that we know so well, uh, or at least have heard of and have ingrained themselves in the consciousness for literally thousands of years. Uh, and yet there was probably all sorts of random, silly, incidental stuff going on and the thesis of this movie is like yeah what if it was just this absurd what if there was some guy named brian there's something so funny about that name like it's i uh i in doing research i found out that they just kind of chose that name just because it sounded funny in relation to jesus christ you know we've got (laughs) you know pontius pilots and uh you know the the roman guard and the people's uh, what what is it? The People's Front of Judea. The people's is that Front what it is? of Judea. Yeah, and yeah. and especially if you and then Brian. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like <laughs> I've always personally found it kind of fascinating how very like Judeo Christian names like Peter and Matthew and Luke, you know, from like the New Testament, have gone on to just sort of be like, oh, those are very like Anglo-Saxon names because they've become they've lasted over the centuries and and so forth. And this movie is just like, yeah. But there's you could say the same thing about Brian. <laughs> it's yeah. it is a kind of like I'm sure that if if Brian was the name of a disciple, we would we would give it a bit more of a hollowed like ah yes you know Judas or I guess that's a terrible example. <laughs> but it's uh, James Brian of Arimathea. It's John. Ah, I see. Yes. So <laughs> and hey, I mean, look at the name Samuel. That's an Old Testament yeah. name. But then. We don't have that same sort of thing for like Malachi, right? It is just sort of arbitrary. And uh, yeah. yeah. So all Malachi. that said, I I do want to play a clip from the scene where I started laughing a lot and I started realizing I have been missing out a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, I've been letting my my preclections, my my issues, the, the high school version of myself who didn't find this stuff funny for whatever reason. I, Uh, Maybe I just, my inner child was being snuffed out by an angry, hot topic obsessed teenager. (laughs) That's not really true. I didn't really get a hot topic enough, but, um, but I did listen to my chemical romance. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's play a scene from, or a clip from probably my favorite scene in the first act. Uh, It would be hard Mm -hmm. for me to pinpoint my favorite scene overall, but, but here is that clip. Mathias, son of Deuteronomy of Gath, 
You have been found guilty by the elders of the town of uttering the name of our Lord, and so as a blasphemer, you are to be stoned to death. Look, I'd had a lovely supper, and all I said to my wife was, that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. Blasphemy! He said it again! Did you hear him? women here today? Very well. By virtue of the authority vested in me. Oh, lay off. We haven't started yet. Come on. Who threw that? Who threw that stone? Come on. <laughs> Sorry, I thought we started. Go to the back. Oh, dear. Always one, isn't there? Now, where were we? Look, I don't think it ought to be blasphemy. Just saying Jehovah. <laughs> making it worse for yourself? Making it worse? How could it be worse? Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. I'm warning you, if you say Jehovah once more, right, who threw that? Come on, who threw that? <laughs> Was it you? Yes. Right, we well, did say Jehovah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the part where I was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I get it. You know, something I love about that scene is that um, the joke is that it's, and uh, it's kind of hard to tell through just the audio, but the joke is that it's a bunch of women dressed in like <laughs> fake yeah. beards and robes and stuff. The funny thing is that those are actually <laughs> all dudes. So they're doing like, it's like this triple removed joke. Where yeah. <laughs> They're pretending to be women, pretending to be men, and doing all these like silly, exaggerated, high and low pitch voices and everything. And then John Cleese, of course, just uh, being the guard and everything. And I do appreciate that. Uh, that isn't even the best, the big punchline. Like we cut it off a little early there, but the, it keeps going and it just gets even funnier. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, it is fascinating to me too that that is kind of the thesis of the movie is like calling blasphemy for just saying Jehovah. And that's yeah. something that we wouldn't consider blasphemous today, but it's also a little meta text on like the things that you think are so offensive now are, aren't going to be anywhere near as offensive yeah. later. And like, I think you could say the same thing about Life of Brian these yeah. days. I think like uh-huh. 40 years later, is Life of Brian really the most, is that the worst movie? You know, is that something that, Oh goodness. No, you know, the church is all that worried about considering the movies that are being made today. And it really is all about interpretation and context and taking the piss out of sacred cows and so on. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because, uh, this movie, when it came out, uh, as you might expect, uh, did get an X rating. Uh, if, if it wasn't just banned outright, it was let off with a warning and an X rating, um, which doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, but that was kind of like the height of, you know, adults only and stuff. Um, and, uh, I read, I forget exactly the name of the, uh, corporation that did it or whatever. Um, but they did sort of a reevaluation of it recently, like in the last five years and, uh, and gave it a 12 and older rating. So they're (laughs) saying like someone who's 12 could watch this and be fine. And this is a movie where like, a naked man throws open a window and gets like, and we get like a full frontal shot and everything. Yeah. So there's full frontal nudity and a few F bombs, but 
Other yeah. than that, there really isn't that much in this movie that's, yeah. And there's one thinly veiled C-bomb. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah. But it is it is pretty, uh, I wouldn't say well hidden, but it's, it's, yeah. easy, it's easy to miss if you are a young, impressionable John or Sam. Yes. That way. Or, or perhaps another name. Um, there's, there's one little thing, uh, that we skipped that I just want to shout out real fast. It's, it's while they're all the, all the, uh, citizens are marching up on the mountain while Jesus is giving the sermon. It says Judea 33 AD text fades out a couple seconds later, text on screen comes out Saturday afternoon. And then that fades out and another one comes in around tea time. <laughs> that is Monty Python's humor in a nutshell, just like yeah. acknowledging silly little arbitrary nonsense of day to day life that would have been present even in uh, such coveted uh, biblical times of old and everything. And that's kind of what's over this entire movie. And it's what makes it so consistently funny. Like it's like from beginning to end. And again, it's a short movie, but still for like the amount of jokes that's in it for the amount, uh, the amount that work is really impressive. I have to agree. And I, I also want to bring it to Graham Chapman, who of course plays Brian and really great casting. I think that it it is, it is kind of scary that he almost didn't get the role. Uh, yeah. famously John Cleese, wanted this role but uh, the other the other pythons are like no yeah. <laughs> like that's that's you're not supposed to be brian and they were concerned that graham chapman wouldn't be able to do it because he was suffering from alcoholism at the time uh especially during the the production of the holy grail but uh he he definitely wanted the role pretty badly so he got his act together and he dried out uh right on time for them to film the film to, to film the film sam yes yes <laughs> and and here we are and i think this movie wouldn't be nearly as good with Without him, because he has this presence about him where he he's not always the source of the absurdity or the surreal humor. He's tend he tends to like react to everything that's happening and then he just yeah. sort of spouts things off. But he has to be that like affable, sort of hapless, you know, gray character. He he's not a good character, he's not a bad character. He's just sort of like in it for himself. And as you follow his his story, his journey, as it were, you, you can't help but root for him because you can see yourself in sort of that gray character. And it, the performance is like, it's kind of understated. I, I was yeah. more impressed than I thought I would be. When, I, when you first see him on the screen, I was just kind of like, I don't know. The, I, I wasn't sold on his presence and like his look and like that whole the brian conan-ness of it all but i think you're right i think it is like it plays into the joke enough that it it ultimately just it just works yeah it's uh graham chapman was um had a lot of like played a bunch of roles in flying circus um but in the movies more often than not he wouldn't play very many characters like in holy grail uh he's king arthur and he's one of the heads on uh the three-headed knight that Sir Robin encounters in the woods. Um, but besides that, most of the roles are just little like cameos and stuff. Like he, he plays a hiccuping guard at one point. Um, but he does have that ability to be believably, uh, for, for lack of a better word, uh, especially considering that he's a gay man, the straight man. Uh, so uh, it, it works that he got to be 
uh, Brian, because I think part of the reasoning that they didn't, the other pythons didn't want John Cleese to do it is no, because then otherwise you wouldn't be able to be a bunch of other characters. And John Cleese plays a bunch of hilarious roles in this movie, uh, not the least of which is Reg, <laughs> the radical leader of the Judean People's Front, uh, and uh, and one of the one of the Roman guards who's sort of uh, the commander at arms of pilots, played yeah. by the Centurion uh, Michael. Ch- Michael Palin. Oh yeah. The centurion. I couldn't forget the word, uh, or couldn't remember the word rather. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what, it's kind of what's at the heart of this movie, but in between it is a lot of just really funny stuff. Like I think immediately after, or maybe not immediately, but not too long after that scene of the clip you just played, uh, is a joke that doesn't work in audio, but it's hilarious to watch, which is where (laughs) like, a a sacrifice is thrown into the middle of the Colosseum and this big dude with like armor and a sword comes in and is about to slay him alive. And then he just runs away in circles (laughs) around the Colosseum until the big dude with the sword collapses. And it's that kind of stuff that is just, it just doesn't mean anything, but it's so perfectly what it is. And it fits so well within the movie that I I just can't help, but I just can't do anything but laugh. And when it's a comedy, I think that's a good tone to strike. So after this point in the movie, uh, Brian, he falls in with Reg, as you mentioned, played by John Cleese and the people's front of Judea. This is one of the first scenes where we get a sort of a hint of how the, this film pokes a lot of fun at the, the schisms in Christian faith. And you can say the same thing about lots of different faiths, of course. Uh, But here you can, it it does draw a pretty specific line to things like the difference between like Protestants and Catholics and Lutherans and Calvinists and all of that. And it's like these very minor differences sort of drive apart the people who you would think should be on like the same side. And that's like probably the biggest theme of the film. If you, if you really pay attention to how much time they devote to trying to get a point across. That's probably the one that gets the most airtime here. And so yeah. Brian decides, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make these guys happy. I'm going to work for them. And he, he's going to paint a, uh, a negative thing about the <laughs> Romans who are the true enemy. Right. And he's yes. going to say, he's, he's going to paint something like Romans go home. And yes. uh, here, here is a quick little clip of uh, Brian. And as this scene starts, you see, it's like, and then it's in the middle of the night and this ominous background music is starting and you see the Roman soldiers are coming up while Brian is anxiously trying to get all the words out before he can get caught. But then the Roman soldiers are upon him. Here's what happens. What's this then? Romanes Domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. What's Latin for Roman? Come on, ah, come on. Romanus? Goes like. Annus? Pocketed plural of Annus is. Annie? Romani. <laughs> he starts Aeon? correcting. What is Aeon? <laughs> go. <laughs> Conjugate <laughs> the verb to go. Here, uh, Aeon is it, imus, it is Aeon. So Aeon is? Uh, uh, third person plural, uh, present indicative. Uh, they go. But Romans go home is an order, so you must use the... Yeah, imperative. Which is? Um, oh, oh, um, e. How e. many Romans? Plural, plural, ite. Ite. He's like correcting it right on the wall. Nominative. <laughs> Go home. This is motion to wars, isn't it, boy? Dating. 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 Dating.
Oh my goodness. I th- this was the second scene that just had me rolling, Sam. Yeah. I I was losing it <laughs> during this scene. It is so funny. It is just like especially if you are a bit of a writer nerd as the two of us are, uh, yes. especially one to appreciate. Yes. This is how I imagine uh if if they had gone with the angle of Jesus like coming down off of the cross saying, "No, no, you're doing it wrong." I imagine it would have played out something like this. Um, but the funny thing is that, and, uh, and we just sort of have to explain what happens here because, uh, so Brian is forced to stay there until the next morning, right? Romans go home correctly with this red paint all over the side of the temple wall a hundred times. Uh, it cuts to the next morning. It's there's writing all over the wall. It's like huge text and small text and it's like upside down and sideways and vertical and stuff like, oh, very good. And then and only then do the Romans start chasing him. And Brian and this scene, when I first saw it two years ago, this scene blew my mind. I could not believe what I was watching. I I sort of I sort of lost myself in the movie at this point because Brian starts to run away, goes into the village, runs <laughs> runs up the stairs of this tower, gets to the top of it, doesn't realize that there's no like ledge or support, <laughs> falls off the tower, and then an alien ship swoops in and catches him. And he almost gets involved in a in a huge high-speed intergalactic war. <laughs> And a couple of it's years the after, the thing after, yeah, it's yeah, right but, after Star Wars, right, right, same year as uh, Alien. So it's kind of like I don't know. This film sort of, I guess, joking. It's it's doing the absurdist thing of like they don't know how to end things. Yeah, <laughs> but, but then also just like poking a little bit fun of like the newer <laughs> films, like the ones that are making all the money. I guess. Yeah, it's it's the it's like the Monty Python equivalent of Moonraker, except they yeah. weren't serious about it. It's it's so random and so insane. And Terry Gilliam did all the work on like the uh, on like the inside of the alien ship and the space shots and everything. Uh, and it's it happens so fast that you don't have time to like criticize it. But if you pause it, I bet it'd look fantastic. <laughs> it's just so out of nowhere and so like so brushed off because what happens is that the ship ends up crashing back into the exact same spot where Brian was about to fall down. And just he just gets stands up, walks away from the wreckage, and keeps running. It's the most <laughs> ludicrous joke in the entire movie, and it's it might be my favorite one to be honest. Like there, it's there are so many to choose from in this movie. We I know we won't be able to get to them all. That one might be my favorite because it just it just so I couldn't. <laughs> I just I was lost for words as I am now. Yeah. It's such a Python thing. Uh, and uh, and I couldn't get enough of it. So I actually rewound the scene today uh, and watch it again just because I had to see it again. Just the, I wonder where they got that idea. I think they were probably under the influence of something. <laughs> I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, little, little Lucy in the sky. Eh? I could see it. though. was like they're like, OK, so he jumps off the tower. But how does he not die? And somebody just came up with the most absurd answer. And I was like, yes. That is how that's he survives it. that. That's how, that's the only way that makes sense for the scene. But yeah, so 
the, he does eventually fall back in with his cohorts and they go on this mission to try to steal Caesar's wife and hold yeah. her hostage. However, the other people's Judea front or whatever it's called, they yeah. uh, they have the same plan and then they all, they end up murdering each other in the catacombs. Yeah. In a bloody fight to the death and only Brian is left standing after shouting the line, please, can't we suffer together? <laughs> He's like, we are. Uh, I did gloss over a scene where Reg... Uh, and the the rest of the group are saying like, well, what have the Romans ever oh, done for okay. us? Probably, probably one of the more iconic scenes. That's one that I was a little bit more aware of, just like consciously through like media. But like yeah. besides, you know, like uh, clean water and irrigation and aqueducts and well, they've made it more peaceful and like and just going through the whole list and kind of poking <laughs> fun at at uh, at the Jew the Jewish plight against Rome during this time, at, at least as it's portrayed in films, but. Then eventually, Brian does get caught, and he's sent over yeah. to Pontius Pilate, played by, I believe he's, it's uh, Michael Palin, right? That's correct. Right. So one of the most uh, memorable performances in the film, I think. I, I just, I absolutely love this. It's so simple, the, the joke, the, the conceit of it. It shouldn't <laughs> be as funny as it is. Like, it's one of those things where, like, they do it, there's so much of this joke. It's just, like, over and over again. And yeah. it doesn't stop being funny. It's and it, still it's, funny. It speaks to their, I guess, <laughs> how good they are at timing. Like they understand like how to like keep a joke going without repeating it. So uh, at this point, Brian's been dragged before Pontius Pilate, and it's been revealed that he has a bit of a, a speech impediment. He's not able to do his R's. If, if you don't know, the word for that is a, a rhodochistic uh, speech impediment. Yes. So uh, Brian uh, doesn't understand what he's saying, and he's being uh, abused for it. And at this point, he's now just trying to to have a little bit of fun because why not? Uh, here, here's what yeah. happens next. Oh, your father was a woman. Who was he? He was a centurion in the Jerusalem garrisons. Really? What was his name? Nautius Maximus. <laughs> centurion, do you have anyone of that name in the garrison? Well, no, sir. Well, you sound very sure. Have you checked? Well, no, sir. Um, I think it's a joke, sir. Like, uh, Siliosaurus or Biggest Digger, sir. <laughs> What's so funny about Biggest Diggers? <laughs> well, it's a joke name, sir. I have a very great friend in Rome called Biggest Diggers. <laughs> Silence! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly with rotten behavior like that. Can I go now, sir? Ah! Wait, your bigger stickers hears of this. Wait! Take him away! Oh, sir. No, no, I want him fighting rabid wild animals within a week. Yes, sir. <laughs> Come on, you. Uh, this obviously just keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's pretty hilarious. We, we won't reveal, of course, there's another name that gets thrown into the mix that uh, oh, yes. we might have alluded to earlier. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just this Pontius Pilate character, just hilarious. And like, I, I just don't understand how these actors were not. How do they not break? Like, how many times did they have to shoot these scenes? Many times. Uh, I happen to know um, this is and this is consistent throughout all the Python movies. Um, but they would purposely go off book, which means they would uh, start improvising their lines just to see if they could 
without breaking character. Uh, and in fact, there's a part where where a Pontius Pilate, Michael Palin, walks up to this guard and and practically dares him not to laugh after hearing the name Bigus Dickus. And, and if you look closely, Michael Palin can barely keep it in himself. So that was uh, it's, it's impressive that that ended up making it into the yeah. final cut. Um, my my heart leapt for joy when Biggest Dicks, when Biggest Dickus actually <laughs> ended up in the film. <laughs> yes. Who, as it turns out, also played by Graham Chapman and has a lisp, uh, which, which is played for one very specific joke uh, right right at the end of the movie. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's it's quite the uh, quite the troop of comedians we have here who are able to just just keep going. Uh, there's one scene in Holy Grail where it's the scene where they're trying to decide what to do with the witch, air quote. Uh, and there's a scene where Terry Jones playing Sir Bedivere says, and uh, it asks a question, and the townspeople are like can't think of the answer right away. And if you look closely at Eric Idle, who plays one of the villagers, he bites on the scythe that he's holding uh and apparently the reason for that was that he was just trying not to laugh so he was just doing any motion he could so if you've ever wondered why eric idol bit the scythe at that point that's why (laughs) uh yeah i i think that's what's good about this scene in particular too is like the at least the guards have like a reason to try to like break and it's often said that fake laughter is harder to pull off than fake crying uh, it's one yeah. of the hardest things to do in acting because fake laughing is just, it, it's really easy to see through it. Uh, a lot of people would say, but I, I want to play another scene. Like, I, I think the middle section of this film is probably the strongest. I yeah. I don't love the very beginning. I think it's fine. And the very end, I think is more interesting. Like I wouldn't see the very, very end. I think the ending of this film is basically perfect. Like I yeah. love the ending and I'd say, though, the beginning of the ending, like the the beginning of the third act is, you know, it it goes on for a bit. But this is like the meat of it. Like, this is where all my favorite scenes are. And I think one of the culminating scenes for it, if you started perhaps with uh, not the stoning scene, but if you started with uh, the space scene, as you put it, uh, (laughs) this this next one where Brian is on the run yet again, he's trying to get away from the guards and he runs up to a shopkeeper. And oh, boy, here's what happens next. How much, quick? What? It's for the wife. Oh, uh, 20 shekels. Right. What? There you are. Wait a minute. Oh, well, we're, we're supposed to haggle. No, no, I've got to get... What do you mean, no, no, no? I haven't got time. Well, give got... it back then. No, 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 I just paid you. What? Yeah. This bloke won't haggle. Won't haggle? <laughs> All right. Do we have to? Now, look, I want 20 for that. I just gave you now, are you telling me that's not worth 20 shekels? No. Look at it. Feel the quality. That's not in your goat. All right, I'll give you 19 then. No, no, no. Come on, do it properly. What? Haggle properly. This isn't worth 19. You just said it was worth 20. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Come on, haggle. All right, I'll give you 10. That's more like it. 10? Are you trying to insult me? Me with a poor dying grandmother? 10? <laughs> Uh, and again, it just keeps going on and on. I hate that we have to cut it off, but <laughs> Sam, uh, d- do you know how to haggle properly? Cause <laughs> I don't think I did before I watched this scene. Yeah. It's a, apparently it's a very specific art form that, uh, <laughs> was all the rage in yeah. Judeo, uh, Christian times. Well, it's so. such a good trope though. Like it's, it's one of those things <laughs> Like I was watching today, uh, Jumanji, the next level, which is a movie that has nothing to do with this, but it is another movie that 
pokes fun at tropes, or at least it thinks it does, right? And it's mm. like video game tropes. And one of the things I didn't like about that movie is that it just didn't find a lot of interesting ways to critique video games. Whereas this one, I mean, that's such a simple, like, throwaway almost kind of scene where it's like, why are we making fun of that? Uh, there's a scene not too long after this where uh, all of these Roman soldiers, kill, like 20 of them, keep rolling into this house and they yes. can't find, like, the 18 <laughs> people who are hiding, like barely hiding spots one of whom is literally standing there <laughs> with a sheet over them they can't find anyone and all they 20. find is a spoon <laughs> they find a wooden spoon that's all they can manage mm-hmm. but yes uh yes i i just i i think this is a much more incisive th- film than i was expecting and uh i i, I think haggling has been ruined for me i don't, I don't think i'll be able to appreciate <laughs> it the same uh, ever again uh, Sam, we've gone through a bunch of scenes here, but uh, yeah, like now that we're at like, the midpoint of the film, what, what are your thoughts so far? Uh, it's uh, well, it's hilarious, of course. Uh, every scene has has something to laugh at, has something to appreciate. Uh, the production design is all fantastic. Um, if you haven't seen what it looked like yet, uh, it's uh, needless to say, it's it looks great. It really evokes a time period, um, and yeah, it's just. It's just rolling along. And that's one thing I love about it is that it's 93 minutes, which compared to a lot of uh, comedies we see nowadays, uh, isn't that long. But it's so dense with humor and is just so efficient, even even with these jokes that go on for like four or five minutes, just sort of uh, riffing on the same punchline in different ways, uh, still manages to be concise and um, doesn't doesn't just never outstays its welcome. And that's consistent throughout the entire movie. Now, I did mention earlier that I, I do think like the last 30 minutes are a bit hit or miss, but there's there's one more for me, at least there is one more scene that I just think is like basically the the entire text of the movie. And I think like it really drives home how Life of Ryan really is about criticizing and pointing at mm. the 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 comedy itself of how organized religion when you really yeah. peel back the layers like what <laughs> it and what it really represents and i know exactly the scene you're gonna play yeah yeah and and that's the thing is like like i said before it's like only people who could grow up in this sort of environment understand a lot of the petty differences that this stuff <laughs> is based on and it's not just people who are now atheists who can look back and, and understand like why it's it's as funny as it is. Sam, I don't know your background in religion, your relationship to it. Pretty personal question. But I, I do think like I can say for me that I love it as like really seeing it um, as somebody who's been on the inside and under like these petty differences. They're not exaggerating that much. It yeah. really is super close to how all that stuff pans out. And <laughs> uh, I am going to play that clip because I really do think it beautifully sums up uh, really what these guys are going for and where I think they ultimately succeed and actually saying something not just making a bunch of good jokes so the scene is uh brian who was trying to escape eventually gives a speech trying to like serve as a distraction so the guards don't notice him and he starts spouting off the things he heard from the sermon of the mound but they don't they don't land the people are very like skeptical of it that part's quite funny and eventually though he starts like trailing off and then he's like and then uh nothing And then he just sort of like leaves because he realizes he can escape now. But for some reason, everybody believes that he's being coy. (laughs) 
And it's yeah. at this point they all decide like he could have he he is somebody profound. They start chasing after him, and uh, somebody finds the gourd that got thrown in with what he bought earlier. And they're yeah. now chasing him, and he's trying to escape all these people who now think that he is the Messiah. And he yes. even accidentally drops a shoe. His his shoe is now on the ground, and this this the hoarding masses are coming upon it at this point in the scene. <laughs> can't see that here but there's actually a, a cameo in, in this scene the uh the hooded old man in the middle who is uh trying to like spout um platitudes is actually played by, i forget his name but they mentioned this in the documentary but he's played by a, a very famous director um who was kind of like a, a friend of the the pythons and he was actually shooting not too far from them in tunisia and he yeah. was uh, he was shooting a World War II film, and uh, he actually fought in World War II as well. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm just blanking on his name, but it's it's a uh, I have the name. It's a uh, director Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan. Uh, I kept wanting to say it was Spike Jones. <laughs> Spike <laughs> Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Spike Milligan just so happened to be in Tunisia at the same time they were filming it. Like it right. wasn't even planned. They just found out like, oh, Spike Milligan's nearby. Let's yeah. go ask him to be in the picture or whatever. Right. They only have him for one scene. And then, uh, yeah, I think he was like, that was fun. And then he didn't want to do any more. Yeah. To the point where he sort of like snuck away uh, so as not to be in any of like the publicity shots or anything. Right. Right. Uh, and it is and it is a uh, uh, one of those blink and you miss it things. Same thing with the George Harrison cameo early on. That's right. So at this point, we're getting into the final act of the film. And Sam, I'm curious because you mentioned before, like, holy grail is like what you think is like one of the funniest films of all time. But how do you think life of Brian compares? And do you, do you have any criticisms at this point? Like, is there anything about the film that you think is lacking? It's a, it's a valid question. It's an interesting one. It's one that I hadn't thought about too much. Um, the thing I have, a an interesting sort of way of going about comedy, um, which is admittedly kind of inconsistent. Uh, I'm a little hard on comedy just for the simple reason of, uh, I, I tend to gravitate, like if you look at a list of my favorite movies, um, it, a lot of it is real heavy, dramatic, uh, emotionally charged stuff. Um, and for whatever reason, comedy rarely fulfills that thirst I have, even if it, if, even if I find it perfectly serviceable and, uh, you know, uh, successful in what it's setting out to do, um, a lot of the time I find, I find myself sort of, uh, sort of wanting more. 
Um, but for whatever reason, with uh, the Python movies, uh, these two, or Holy Grail and Life of Brian uh, in particular, for whatever reason, I just, I like get everything that I could possibly want from it. Like it's got all the comedy uh, in spades to deliver. Like there's no shortage of that. So it fulfills that need. And then they all have this, uh, just this brilliant sense of humor about them where they're either criticizing something or just poking fun at something, uh, in a way that's not too, not too hostile. Um, but just sort of trying to find the humor in something that really doesn't, uh, get mined for humor a lot. Uh, I just find it so, uh, so rewarding, uh, cinematically and comedically. Um, probably with this rewatch, uh, I, I will say that I found some of the humor specifically involving, uh, Pontius Pilate and, and Biggest Dickus, um, found it just a tad bit, uh, not necessarily mean spirited, but, uh, just a little, uh, a little much with the whole speech impediment yeah. stuff. Like I tried to imagine, uh, if I had an impediment like that, if I'm watching this, do I still find it funny? Uh, I honestly couldn't say, so I'd be curious to know uh, if uh, someone can speak from that perspective. But yeah, it was just, it was a little distracting uh, to watch it, especially with the amount of times they go back to that well. Also, the the jailer scene, uh, the the two scenes they do with the, yeah. uh, the jailers, that that was a little bit like, whoa. <laughs> like, I, I, that is probably the only content where I, I don't think like a filmmaker today would feel probably feel comfortable uh, making jokes like that although the punchline yeah. eventually is like it, it's hard not to find it humorous i mean there is a good punchline there but like the journey is is it is a little tough <laughs> with like modern eyes to like watch it but uh yeah i i'd say though there is good stuff uh, all over this third act i think that you know my only thing is like it turns into such a chase scene i don't love like how they really start beating the film over the head with how he gets like chased into the hole and then the juniper bushes and the, the miracle stuff and it's like i get it at this point and i thought that i thought it was stretching that joke a little bit too far but they do sort of bring it back with like uh judith iscariot that character and and then yeah. how that uh, the the frontal nudity uh, part and i i love the the humor behind the crowd scene which we won't play the audio because i think <laughs> i think that is one where like the visual is really necessary just to see how it's many people hilarious. there are it is hilarious yeah. and like i in the documentary also talked about how they they filmed that without having to dub it in like the people were just really good at being like pretty much in <laughs> unison wonderful yeah. dialogue there yeah i just think that like once you get to the crucifixion stuff it's you know it, it's fine it's kind of winding down at this point and I, at this point i was i was kind of done i was like all right how much how much time is left i, I wasn't uh, quite as engaged as i had been earlier but i do think the film ends on a wonderful high note but before we get to the very end this film were there any other scenes like that stood out for you in this part of the movie uh too many too many to count uh and even for such a short movie there's just so much crammed in that it uh any like you you can uh select any scene from like the the scene selection menu on a dvd if you have one and you're sure to find something uh just ripe with comedic wonderfulness um there's you know michael palin plays an ex-leper early on and does this <laughs> dance which is just the yeah. funniest visual thing ever uh what else there's of course um 
the uh, just just one of my favorites that really got me this time was again all like 25 of the Roman centurions going into the, <laughs> into the little house and yeah. finding nothing. And they do it a couple of times. So, <laughs> uh, repetition, the repetition is, does work this time. Um, and yeah, just the way, the way that the entire crowd is able to speak in unison <laughs> during the whole, uh, crowd scene when Brian's mom, Mandy shows up, uh, is, is uh is, it's hysterical uh and i love it yeah i, I love uh, a lot of the little scenes here uh there, there is one toward the end where uh somebody could have gotten away with not being crucified but it's like ah, i'm just pulling your leg <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that was the big source of controversy with this film is when uh the the crucifixion stuff happens and uh, there's some humor about like, oh, we don't we don't want to be crucified next to the Samaritans. It's like, well, what, what, why does it matter? You're going to die like all that. Oh, humor. Yeah. And th- this was a big uh, this is a big issue for especially the Catholic Church. We're like, you know, the crucifix is like a very holy, you know, serious thing. And like you shouldn't joke about it. And one of the responses from I forget which Python it was, was just like, I mean, there's crucifixes all over the Catholic Church. Like it's, you know, if it's such a if it's such a, you know, untouchable thing, it's like, why is it, you know, why do people wear it around their necks? And so like there, there was a lot of like defensiveness from these guys. Yeah. Uh, they, there are like yeah. debates you can watch online where they were debating like religious leaders and be like, you just, you don't get it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a brawl and it's, it's hard not to take their side. Right. Especially in hindsight. And it's, it's really hard. It's so difficult to like, to listen to the arguments of like this movie being such a danger being, and it ultimately it is so harmless. It really is yeah. like none of yeah. this humor is like, insightful it's it's not the most challenging subject matter there is it to me it's just like a really fun send-up of a really a kind of a bygone era of hollywood and we, yeah. we really don't get uh biblical epics anymore but people who have no, seen them not very good them. ones at least yeah exactly yeah. uh what was like the last big one right it was probably like noah the darren aronofsky version there was like that yeah, exodus so. movie like the, they, the they tried to ben her the yeah. remake of ben her that was just a few years ago so like and those all failed <laughs> right like they didn't yeah, do scroll yeah. and the, and that just tends to be like the you know, that's, that seems to be like the taste of moviegoers today. So for, for those of us though, who grew up on these films and watched a lot of them, I just think life, life of Brian is just a, a bit of a knockout when it comes yeah. it knocks us out with the last. Yeah. I want to mention, uh, I want to go over one more bit, uh, which will play into, uh, the last thing that happens in the movie, which is very iconic. Um, but what eventually happens is that Brian gets captured uh, and is sent to be crucified, uh, which is not historically in- inaccurate, by the way. It wasn't just Christ who was uh, crucified. That was like a common uh, means of execution right. uh, during the Roman imperial rule. Um, it, uh, what happens is that the uh, all the zealot followers of Brian uh, convince Pilate to uh, release Brian and... Uh, <laughs> They relay this to the guards. They're like, we've been ordered to release Brian And in a scene that weirdly enough pays homage to Spartacus, which we've mentioned a few times. A whole bunch of the people who are there who are about to be crucified say, I am Brian and I am Brian, too. (laughs) I'm Brian and so is my wife. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, uh, very funny. Eventually, some some person, not Bryant, ends up getting released. Uh, and uh, what happens, what follows, is like three or four little bits where it looks like Brian is about to escape. Uh, yeah. uh, his his uh, his. Uh, Judith, who he had spent the night with before, uh, is uh, about to is about to free him, but then says, "No, we we need you to uh, to be a martyr." And yeah. as does the People's Front of Judea. Uh, his mother comes up and expresses regret, which I think is hilarious. And then in the in the weirdest one, and research shed a lot of light on this. A the not the People's Front of Judea, but the Judean People's Front uh, show up. Uh, and what's called a crack suicide squad, which is like these warriors, these yeah. radical warriors. Uh, they dress they like come, samurai. They dress like samurai for some reason, and uh, they chase away the Romans and then just commit seppuku right there yeah. or whatever. Uh, and uh, I learned during the research is that that joke seems like it's completely out of nowhere. But it's because there was, a, yeah, they cut out a, another scene that explains yeah. it. The the leader of that uh, that radical party, uh, played by Eric Idle, if memory serves, um, was actually going to be a character named Otto O T T O. Uh, was going to be like a full on character in the movie, um, who was uh, this allegory for uh, what's the word? Uh, oh gosh, uh, fascist thinking. Uh, yeah, they were like Nazis, but like for Jewish, Jewish Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, well, their their whole thing was like, yeah, like the Jewish people, it should be like a nationalist, no Romans allowed sort of thing. Yeah, because what we learn early on in the movie is that Brian uh, was conceived um, through an act of assault by a Roman soldier. So he is half Roman. So yeah. I guess in Harry Potter terminology, he would be a half blood, not a pure uh, not a pure Jew, I suppose. And they allude to this too, right? Where like the mother character is like, you know, she does sexual favors for like Roman soldiers in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it was going to be a character like the, and Otto was going to have like a star of David, uh, painted to look like some sort of a bizarre kind of swastika thing. They decided that was too far. Yeah, uh, yeah. and honestly, they, they said it would have been distracting and, Although I haven't seen the scenes, I've heard that they do exist out there. They are accessible. I haven't watched the scenes, though. Uh, I have to imagine that they're right. I have to imagine that it would have been uh, kind of distracting, especially here 40 years later. Well, even in 1979, I mean, like the Holocaust yeah. was like 34 years removed from that, not even. So yeah. way, way, way too soon. I mean, it, it, it is kind of astounding that they, they thought that that would fly. Um, but yeah, so they took that scene out and then the result is like that scene just sort of comes out of nowhere. I think the movie is so absurd and surrealist that it's fine. Like it doesn't, yeah. I don't think it's distracting. I think it's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's not even in like the top five most random things in the movie. Right. So yeah. Especially compared to the ending in Holy Grail. Compared to that ending, compared to the alien ship uh, and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It can easily go unnoticed. But if you're if you've ever been curious about what the deal is with the suicide squad that shows up, uh, <laughs> that's where it comes from. If you're wondering why Harley Quinn is in this movie as why. <laughs> oh, Harley said it again. <laughs> the film ends not with Brian being rescued, but uh, a, a song breaking out, a dance number on a bunch of crucifixes where people can't even dance and everyone yeah. starts singing uh, a song called bright side of life. Uh, it's a very whistly tune. It's a wonderful tune. We'll play it to close out 
this episode and it's been stuck in my head ever since I watched it. But <laughs> it's you know, a catchy, we, it's a good one. It's very catchy. And you mentioned they, they wrote it for this movie. You mentioned yeah, that they they don't know how to end things. Uh and they so they usually just end things with like, well, you know. And this is a good example where like they just didn't know what to do. They didn't know how do you wait, the story's over what now? And they're like, all right, well he's just going to sing a song. <laughs> yeah. But I think it Why fits. Not? I, I yeah I I think it just fits the whole movie and it's like I don't think this movie could have ended any other way I think it's perfect for what was set up before but at the same time not what was set up before I don't know it's it's I hadn't thought about that but yeah it would have uh, if Brian had escaped it would have felt like kind of a cop out if he had died it would have been depressing as hell so I think you're absolutely right I think this is the perfect ending and it's it's a uh, what what Julia Tatey would call a bop so uh, I'm glad to. Uh, I'm glad to be able to revisit it here in digital audio uh, form. Yeah. Well, that is Monty Python's Life of Brian. Uh, wonderful to watch this film for the first time. What What did you think on this latest viewing, Sam? Uh, it sounds like you're still a big fan. It sounds like yeah. you still really like the film. Uh, what, do, you, do you have like a letterbox grade for it? Uh, I, I haven't logged it yet. Um, but yeah, th- this is a four star movie. It's, uh, it's solid, solid as hell. Uh, mm. n- not a, not a harsh word to say about it. Uh, some slightly negative words, but nothing harsh. It's, uh, yeah, I have, I have no, I take no issue with life of Brian. Ah, basically on the same page. Uh, I think I also gave it four stars on letterboxes. I th- that's about right. Uh, do you think it is one of the funniest films ever made? Do you think it deserves to be on those lists of like greatest comedies, greatest British comedies, or do you think that's a little overstated? What do you think? No, I think it. I think it earns it. Um, I wouldn't put it like in the upper upper echelons. Um, I've I've said I don't even think it's the best Python movie, but um, it's certainly one of the better comedies that I can think of off the top of my head because it does have just that furious onslaught of of chuckles and everything um and it's got something on its mind which i will always welcome in any movie uh and uh it's just so so perfectly its own thing and uh it it and it feels like they knew what they were doing the whole time which indeed they did they call it like they all the all the python members have looked at it in hindsight and said yeah that's kind of our best work that's where we were at our height that's where we were at our most functional yeah um there were very few problems, if any, like on the set during the production and stuff, with the exception of the EMI uh, funding. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it fires on all cylinders and it deserves a spot on those uh, lists. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's my favorite of the Monty Python films at this point. Uh, I can't I, for the same reasons. I don't think I would put it in the upper upper echelons, but I do take this one over Holy Grail. Uh, I think the humor works for me a bit better. And I appreciate just sort of like it is a series of sketches, but I do like the connected tissue yeah. between all of them. I think it, the movie really flows like pretty well together. Um, yeah. So, yeah, aside from a few minor quibbles, this definitely deserves to be an extra milestone. Sam Noland, mm. lead us off into yes. the picks for next month, which is really this oh, month. Oh, <laughs> goodness. December 2019. What are the films that we're going to be considering for our next episode? Okay, so um, Will Ashton uh, has been, for months now, been trying to talk us into uh, putting Avatar, James Cameron's Avatar, on the qualifying list. Um, and... I think I think John and I are kind of on the same page that yeah we're not we're not really going to do that is th- is that about right 
yeah, it's, I just don't think it's, it's not a milestone. It's not an extra milestone, especially. I just, yeah. Yeah, the film came out 10 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly forgettable. And I, yeah. I don't think that, like a lot of people try to praise it for its its effects, its computer effects and everything. I think animated films have done much more in this realm. I think the thing that it's known for or should be known for is it was the highest grossing film of all time for about a decade. And that was, you know, significant for the fact that it was an original film that wasn't based on anything directly. Yeah. It was just quote unquote original. Well, yeah, yeah, it was a retelling of Dances with Wolves. Everybody has pointed that out. But, you know, it, it still was an achievement that something that wasn't connected to any existing IP or brand was the highest grossing film for a long time. Yeah. And before this, it was Titanic, same director. And mm-hmm. I do appreciate it on that level. But I mean, come on, there's nothing else about this film that uh, makes it, I think, a future classic. It's a film that I know a lot of people greatly enjoy, and that's fantastic. But yeah, I, I definitely don't think the I definitely don't think Pandora is uh, a place where <laughs> I want to go with all of you in December of 2019. Yeah. I mean, like, Liz, I don't hate Avatar. Like, I can watch it. I can get through it. Um, but it's a it's a three star movie. Like there's there's only so much to go into. And when it comes to being an extra milestone beyond the effects, which really like did it, I don't really think it directly changed the industry. Just probably 3D. Like it was the yeah, first so. film. There are two big things for it. It it sort of created or recreated or reintroduced 3D to modern film which has lasted i mean i think 3d is phasing out again at this point um yeah at this point like i i don't think there are any like 3d showings for anything at, at my local theater um uh, i haven't thought about it in a while but yeah i usually like when i would go to press screenings like there were, it would always be like 3d especially for like disney films but yeah now that i think about it they've all just been like dolby atmos or like one of those things or imax and yeah 3d is kind of almost gone at this point and because people just aren't willing to pay those prices the other thing that it did was not worth it the other thing that it did was that it it injected like the it it helped sort of usher in a new era of film and hollywood blockbusters in china uh for a lot of people Mm. in china it was like one of the first american films that china allowed to be shown and one of the reasons that for example why star wars has never taken off in china is because chinese audiences just they don't have a connection to Star Wars, but they do have a connection to Avatar, which is why they're making more films, because that was a film yeah. that a lot of them saw. And, and it was a big event in that country. And China accounts for a huge, huge population of the planet. So the, the, <laughs> besides those two things, yeah, I don't think it revolutionized all that much. Uh, it just sort of pushed the needle on effects and things of that nature. But uh, yeah, yeah, otherwise, not much else. And and even so, it didn't do it single handedly, not by a long shot. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's talk to me again when, you know, five years from now, when there are a couple of these Avatar movies yeah. uh, and James Cameron is like a working director again. Um, but as of now, can't remember the last time I heard anyone express any interest in Avatar. Um, and there, and the reason for that is not because it's an obscure lost classic. It's because <laughs> there's just not much to get into. Sure. But when it comes to the stuff that we will have a chance to get into, uh, I had to narrow this list down quite a bit because December um, is kind of kind of known as like the prestige season nowadays. It's a big uh, month. And that, yeah. And that is not a new that is not a new idea. So a lot of these movies are really well renowned, uh, like uh, classy 
movies, so to speak, for lack of a better word, uh, not to degrade any other genre or anything. But there's there was a lot of stuff to pick from. And uh, I ended up narrowing it down to and I might you know, I might eliminate one of them right off the bat here. But uh, I've got seven nominees here and uh, a few of them do qualify for uh, future months. So we could possibly push them back. But for now, I suppose I'll just list the nominees uh, going in order of release date. First, we have celebrating its 80 year uh, anniversary, a movie which premiered in the U.S. Uh, in December of 1939 and expanded wide in January. So it could possibly qualify for them. Mm is Best Picture winner and all-time classic Gone with the Wind. Oh, boy. <laughs> Gone with the Wind. Yeah. That's a, is it, So Victor Fleming. Yeah. That is a long movie, Sam. That's, it's four hours. Yeah, that's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, it's, it's three hours and 55 minutes with no intermission, if that helps. Fascinating to me, too, because we just talked about Avatar, highest grossing film of all time. I don't think any film is being gone with the wind in terms of yeah, just sheer ticket sales. Yeah. Um, so if you, you can't adjust for inflation there, but just how many tickets this thing sold. Like, we can't even comprehend. Like, I don't want to gloss over this. We can't even comprehend how many people saw this movie yeah. back in 1939. Because it didn't stop showing. That's the thing. Oh, yeah. It just played everywhere constantly. for uh -huh. And, and you know, the, we had to take the context. And there's a lot we could talk about with this film because it, you know, this is like right as World War II was beginning. Um, it's it's probably like the blueprint for like the epic romance for like the modern era. Right. Like yeah. really coming into like sound film and like these sweeping dramas. And uh, this is like. Gosh, was this one of the first Clark Gable films to just really because we talked about it happened at one uh, or it happened one night. Yeah. But at this point, I mean, this 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 just like blew up his profile. Oh, yeah. And and not to mention uh, Vivian Lee and uh, the ent the entire cast won tons of Oscars, uh, m many, if not all of them deserved uh there's and and uh I have you seen Gone with the Wind? I actually I should know that. But I have seen Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that film though since I was very young. And I have not watched it with adult eyes. Um Ooh. yeah, I think the last Vivian Lee film I saw was probably Streetcar Named Desire. Uh well yeah, another Elia Kazan film, actually. Um oh, yeah. maybe we'll talk about that in a couple of years. But th this would be a fascinating conversation. I um yeah. I, I think that if this wins, I, I will I will stomach the however, probably like two hundred and 50 240 minutes however long it is and uh i'll give it a give it a watch yeah i watched uh i just last week i watched uh i watched the movie satan tango and that mother's seven hours long so <laughs> four hours sounds like nothing to me now right. uh bring it on <laughs> gone with the wind uh up next jumping forward 20 years a significantly shorter movie uh and significantly more more uh more obscure this is i would i would say if i'm gonna uh, throw one in. I would say this and another movie are probably the two underdogs that I would be equally baffled and equally not surprised <laughs> we at gotta, all. We got to have them. Yeah, they can't all yeah. just be the obvious. We got to. I love that you sprinkle the obscure ones in there. Yes, uh, I am talking about the uh, one of the masters of all cinema. If you don't know this name, uh, I recommend becoming familiar with it. It is Robert Bresson's Pickpocket. Mm. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is this this film has been on my to do list 
for quite a while. Oh, uh, John, you are. It is. It is a fantastic one. Anything. Every single thing that Robert Bresson ever directed is a masterpiece. Uh, uh, a Man Escaped is my favorite, but that um, is for another year. For now, Pickpocket is on the docket. Uh, just a real quick summary, in case you don't know, just to to whet the appetite. Um, it is a story about a man who uh, lives in France and goes around and just steals things yeah. out of people's pockets uh, just for fun. And uh, I won't say what happens from there. But yeah, the title, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and it has an, a striking cinematic style and vision. Um, and it, and uh, I would be amazed if someone watched this movie and didn't immediately become fascinated with watching every single other Brisson movie. Um, so whether or not this ends up winning, uh, I do recommend checking it out. It is on the Criterion channel, as are many of Robert Brisson's movies. So uh, get that on your radar if it isn't already. I'm conflicted. I'm a little conflicted on this one because yeah. I've heard good things. I haven't heard great things. I, I don't know anybody who loves this film. I've just heard that it's one of the French New Wave ones to watch watch that's because it's instructive for like yeah. a film sort of like you know just for understanding the film of this era or the films of this mm. era but yeah i'm curious i robert not a director i'm as familiar with and i i kind of want to get into his filmography and it sounds like this would be a good film to get it into with but i don't know against gone with the wind that's, that's tough sam that's tough again that's that's why it's uh we, we've got a very eclectic mix here so uh very curious to see how it goes. It. Um, up next is uh, one that is uh, somewhat topical, I'd say. Uh, in uh, April of 2020, we will have the 25th uh, official James Bond movie, No Time to Die. But in 1964, the third and possibly most iconic James Bond movie, Goldfinger, ah, came out. I was about to say, I was like, oh, is it going to be Dr. No? <laughs> but Because that was... Uh early 60s i guess huh yeah that was 62 goldfinger was 64 uh came right out uh came out right after from russia with love yeah which was 1963 uh goldfinger uh qualified for extra milestone in september and october which is when it uh came out in uh the uk but it premiered in the u.s in december and it also went wide in the u.s in january so if this doesn't win it still has another chance but uh just so everything is on the table i i love goldfinger i mean it's yeah. i i can't say that i think it's objectively an amazing film i think guy hamilton though is just uh probably the best director to work with this material or at least like one of the like defining directors behind it uh, i do think sam mendez sort of gives him a run for his money but yeah between yeah. this and like man with the golden gun live and let die uh yeah he just, the other gold ones yeah exactly yeah or, well he did do one about diamonds uh yeah. yeah he just he just really understood this character and and what makes him interesting and uh we owe a lot to him for the james bond legacy for sure for sure so it'll be interesting to sort of uh see not where it started per se but where it sort of where it sort of uh, became its own thing yeah, this uh, is, I think it's fair this is probably the first really successful one. This is the one that like yeah. uh, definitely like put Sean Connery on magazines, right? Because like Dr. No and From Usher With Love, they were hits, but they weren't like mega hits like this one was, especially not internationally. For sure. Yeah. Uh, jumping forward 10 years, um, we have, much like the winner of this month's Extra Milestone, another uh, comedy legend. It is uh, Sam Noland. 
you, what? Oh. <laughs> oh, I see what you say. <laughs> I thought you were saying my name to like ask me a question or to accuse uh, me of something. I was I was accusing you of being a comedy legend. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I appreciate the uh, admiration and I admire the appreciation. So what do you think about that, John? Mm. But no, what we have here is uh, I still think uh, another one of the funniest movies of all time, uh, the 1974 black and white, utterly, endlessly, iconically hilarious Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Okay. Oh, I really <laughs> want it to be this one. <laughs> oh, how perfect would that be, though, Sam? Yeah. As the first 1974 film? That would be fantastic. It's uh, one of one of the all-time greats. I'm hesitating to go into just an onslaught of quotes from the movie, but that will have to wait until it wins, if indeed that does end up happening. Um, the other 1974 movie is a dramatic about face from Young Frankenstein. Uh, the we had we had the comedy, we had the big exciting one from December 1974, and then. We have another all-time classic, the Best Picture winner of 1974, The Godfather Part 2. No way. Yes. Oh, this is going to win, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I literally, I just rewatched this like a year and a half ago. I I watched it like six months ago. It's still utterly fantastic. Now, I was conflicted about putting this on the list because uh, we have not talked about The Godfather Part 1. So I think we might have to, if this ends up winning, uh, devote perhaps a small uh, segment at the beginning to Mm. not the background. How would we do a small segment about the first Godfather? It would just be like a review, just the, you know, general thought parts of it. I think I think we can manage that. Oh, my goodness. I I was just because I was just watching clips of the first film and kind of diving into some of my favorite scenes from that. And I was thinking to myself, ah, oh, I, I kind of want to rewatch these films again already. And I wouldn't be opposed to it, but this is another one of those movies where I, I hesitated a little bit because it's like, uh, how many times have people talked about The Godfather? Quite a bit. Well, we will have to leave it to the listeners to see if we're going to add one more discussion to that <laughs> big jar of conversation. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to uh, this hypothetical episode nonetheless, as and uh, as as I do with uh, this other one. Now, this is the other movie that I would consider to be uh, the underdog going into this, if there was one. Uh, and it is another movie that I have not seen and that from the moment I heard of it, I wanted to watch it immediately. And just for whatever reason, I've never never gotten around to it. I'm curious if you've seen it, John. It is Bob Fosse's 1979 classic, All That Jazz. Ooh, I have not seen All That Jazz. Uh, yes. Interesting. So so what led you to this one? Because this is, uh, oh my gosh, because um, uh, Bob Fosse, he was the one who did Sweet Charity and- uh, Cabaret. Cabaret. That's the other one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, I yeah, forget what else. That was a 1972 movie. Yeah. Uh, did a did a bunch of big exciting uh sexy dance movies uh and this was one of them from what i've heard uh been wanting to watch it for years maybe this will be what finally pushes it over the edge yeah 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 so uh another roy scheider movie right that's right yeah yeah, yeah jessica lange and um uh, i forget who else but yeah okay so that that would be a very interesting film yeah yeah uh, i i can see why you would put that as an underdog 
as as a perhaps the underdog, uh, I would be. Uh, I hesitate to say it. I'd be surprised if it won, because as we've learned on multiple occasions, the listeners are eternally unpredictable uh, in a way that is very exciting. Um, But the last movie on the list, we've had Gone with the Wind. We've had The Godfather Part Two. This movie is not quite as long as those two, although it is quite long compared to a lot of other movies. Uh, And it's another movie that premiered in December of, in this case, 1999, and expanded into wide release in January of the year 2000. Oh, no. It is uh, my personal favorite of director Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, I knew it. Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I, I was just I was just watching because I, I for this when we were doing like the Siskel Ebert thing. Yeah, I was just watching the review of Magnolia, and uh, Siskel unfortunately wasn't on it because he of course had passed away at this point. But Roger Ebert was discussing it with another critic who did not get it, who was who was talking <laughs> a lot of trash about Magnolia, and you see it. I, I really recommend people look this up on YouTube. But you see Roger Ebert's face when she says that like it's this movie's a mess. And Roger Ebert's uh, like, no, <laughs> like you do. Uh, where's Richard Roper? He can be the co-host. Uh, it was that kind of thing. But yeah. uh, Magnolia, I I just watched that with uh, Maverick Hines a couple of mm. years ago. Rewatched it, and he had never seen it before. And when that scene happens, I yes, I there are a few times I've seen Maverick Hines just kind of like really baffled by a movie, <laughs> and uh, I don't remember what he said about it i can't remember if he liked it or loved it or hated it it's there's such a fine line that would be fantastic though to wrap up a, a decade too we're, we're, we're finishing out the 20 teens and paul thomas anderson in my opinion has been one of the defining directors of this decade uh incredibly yeah. because he also like you know i think his best film probably came out in 2007 and yet yeah. this decade, you know, you and I were joking about Phantom Thread off the air and uh, Will Ash and I both share a really deep love for the master and... Uh, yeah, as do I. Yeah. I, so it would be interesting. It'd be interesting to dive into Magnolia. I'm curious if the listeners are going to want to talk about that one or hear us talk about it. We will have to find out. Those are your nominees for December 2019 in air quotes. Uh, whether or not it will end up being released within the month remains to be seen, but that is the month that we are celebrating. So once again, your nominees going in order of release date are Gone with the Wind, Pickpocket, Goldfinger, Young Frankenstein, The Godfather Part Two, All That Jazz, and Magnolia. Very good selection, Sam. And then maybe the next episode we'll talk about what did not make the cut for the narrowing down. Uh, but until then, please go to cinemahawks.com. And go to the comment section and let us know which of these films do you want us to talk about. Just go to the episode for Extra Milestone. That is Life of Brian. Alternatively, you can send us an email with your pick. Just email cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, our lovely patrons, their votes count as extra. So they usually, they tend to weigh the results. And you they will get first access to vote on the poll that we'll be sending out with this episode so until then uh thank you as always for listening to extra milestone uh sam noland uh, is there any way anything that people can check out if they want to know more about your thoughts on film um at the moment i'm on a bit of a writing uh hiatus for reasons that i'd rather not get into but uh if if you happen to you know want to 
uh, read something that I've written in the past or just look at what I've rated a movie. Uh, my Letterboxd account is always the greatest source for that. Um, and if you live in the Westminster, Colorado area, come on down to the Alamo Draft House, Westminster. I might drop something off to your table in the dark. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Sam, it's been a pleasure as always. We'll see yes. you in just a little bit because it's still, it actually is the month that we're supposed to be doing the December milestone. But uh, we'll see you all then from the internet, California. I'm John Agroney. And from the internet, Colorado, I'm Sam Nolan. For Will Ashton of the internet, Pennsylvania, we'll see you next time. Don't